0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: Right now, it's uh, not looking great for keeping uh, the planet under 1.5 degrees Celsius of global heating, which is why I'm talking about emergency mode. I think part of the problem with these budget framings and these like, you know, 2050 type deadlines, uh, they create a false sort of complacency and a false lack of urgency,
0: That's Peter Kalmus. He's a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. He's also one of the most outspoken and activist-minded scientific voices on the dangers of climate change. A few weeks ago, Kalmus was arrested after chaining himself to the front doors of JPMorgan Chase's offices in downtown Los Angeles as part of a protest against the bank's investments in fossil fuels.
1: This is so bad, everyone. that we're willing to take this risk and more and more scientists and more and more people are gonna start joining us.
0: We're already seeing the effects of the climate crisis all over the world. And we need to know what that actually means for us. Calmus joins me to discuss the science behind fossil fuels, the need for climate emergency mode, and how everyday people can do their part. That's coming up, stay tuned. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.
2: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data and information in one AI powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
0: Now let's get to your questions. This question comes from Twitter user at Chris Wardout, who asks... Do you think that even if Roberts finds out who the leaker was, that we will ever find out, especially if it comes from the highest ranks of the court? I have my doubts. So of course, Chris is referring to the fallout from the leak of a draft opinion from Justice Samuel Alito that would purport to overturn Roe v. Wade. Let me say a few things at the outset. Number one, I agree with those people who say the leak story is not the story. The story is the overruling of a fundamental right recognized by the Supreme Court and in our country for more than 49 years. But the leak story is a story and it's newsworthy and it's something that needs to be addressed. Now, let me also say as a preliminary matter, I don't know how easy it's gonna be to find out who leaked the opinion. As you may have heard, Chief Justice John Roberts asked the Marshal of the court to conduct the investigation and that Marshal, to my knowledge, does not have any kind of experience and certainly not deep experience conducting investigations generally and certainly not a leak investigation, in fact, I'm not aware of any prior leak investigation that related to the Supreme Court. The second difficulty is the marshal doesn't have compulsory process, can't issue subpoenas, can't compel people to come and testify or turn over documents. So that's a challenge as well. And then one more challenge that I mentioned with Joyce Vance on the Insider podcast this week is that leak investigations generally, whether it relates to a Supreme Court opinion or national security or intelligence gathering, they're difficult. And part of that is because the law protects generally in most states, the media's right to keep their sources confidential. And most journalists, and presumably those at Politico, would maintain that policy and practice. That said, if the Supreme Court has a system by which you can see who's downloading documents and see who's transmitting documents, and that's within the internal control of the Supreme Court, internal emails and the like probably are, and probably are accessible to the marshal as the investigator, maybe somebody tripped up and wasn't careful and a leaker can be found. So to your question about whether or not that will become public, I understand why you have your doubts, but I really do think it would be unimaginable for Justice Roberts, having declared publicly an investigation, and with lots and lots of people, some in bad faith, others in good faith, asking for the identification of the leaker and punishment for the leaker, that in those circumstances, if the leaker was identified, and that person was in fact the person who passed along the draft opinion to Politico, that it would be incumbent upon the Chief Justice to make that public. You know, part of the whole issue of the leak of the opinion relates to the public standing of the court and the integrity of the court. And it would be odd to me if the leaker could be identified to keep that confidential while at the same time publicly making utterances about how horrible it was that the opinion was leaked. One final point about the investigation of the leak generally is that it is interesting, as people have pointed out, that Justice Roberts asked the internal Supreme Court Marshal to conduct the investigation and not some outside investigative agency. That could be in part because, as I've said before, there's no real statute that you can allege the violation of with respect to the leak. It's not grand jury information. It's not classified or intelligence information. So I'm not sure what statute would apply that would implicate the FBI in doing an investigation. And then second, and maybe just as importantly from the perspective of the Chief Justice, by having the investigator be the Marshal of the Supreme Court, it's more likely that the investigation will remain confidential and controllable. And that's probably what the justice wants. And that may be a reason why, Chris, you have your doubts. But I think for all the reasons I stated before, I can't imagine if the leaker's identified, we don't learn about it. So I thought this week, as I've been doing over the course of recent weeks, answering a basic legal question that I get over time, I thought I would do that again this week. And it's a question that I've frequently gotten when I was in office and even since being out of office, why on earth, why does the Southern District of New York get so many cases where the defendants or the conduct of the case appear wholly outside of the Southern District of New York, whether it's people who are planning terrorist attacks or international arms or drug traffickers and the like? And people have often joked about the Southern District of New York being the sovereign district of New York. I remember once uh, an inspector general of an agency asked me when I was in office, remind me again what the jurisdiction of The Southern District of New York is. And I said, are you familiar with Earth? So let me explain as a general matter what venue is about and where venue properly lies and where people can be charged with crimes, even though it may seem from a layperson's perspective from the outside that it doesn't make a lot of sense. So as a preliminary matter, let me mention that venue, where a case can be brought criminally, whether it's in the state court or federal court, is something that has to be proven, just like each element of the crime. In fact, that requirement is of constitutional dimension. The Constitution itself provides that the accused shall enjoy the right to trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. So basically, as a fundamental constitutional matter, if you're accused of a crime, the trial can be brought only in a district where the crime occurred. What's interesting about that is even though it's of constitutional dimension, the standard of proof required to prove the venue element is not the very, very high bar of proof beyond a reasonable doubt like it is for the other elements of any crime, but is in fact the lower bar of preponderance of the evidence. It can also be the case, by the way, that a defendant chooses for various strategic reasons or personal reasons to waive the venue requirement. I remember in my time in office, there were occasions where somebody was charged with multiple crimes, some of which had venue in the Southern District of New York and others of which may have had venue only in the District of Columbia or the Eastern District of New York. And so some of those times, the defendant and counsel would agree to waive the bar on venue so that there could be one proceeding in one court, and sometimes they didn't, and there would have to be two trials. And you would send out assistant US attorneys from your district to the other district so that venue was not a problem. So what does that mean? The district wherein the crime shall have been committed? Well, some crimes are very easy to figure out. Let's say I'm walking by a bank, and I decide in that moment to rob the bank, and I do that in Manhattan. Unless I'm missing something, the only district in which you could bring that federal case would be the Southern District of New York, because nothing at all happened outside of Manhattan, and Manhattan is in the Southern District. If, on the other hand, I conspired with other people, uh, Joyce Vance, for example, to rob a bank, and she and I had communications while she was in Alabama, and I was in New York, and one day I went and I bought a gun in Pennsylvania, and another day I bought other materials, like a mask in New Jersey. There's lots of different districts in which the crime was committed. Any district in which an overt act was done or the agreement to enter the conspiracy happened, all of those places are legitimate locations for venue to lie and for the crime to be prosecuted. It is not the case that a prosecutor has to bring a criminal charge in the district where most of the activity happened, or all of the activity happened. Only one bit of activity can suffice. Then there's the example of cases that the Southern District has brought, and many other districts have as well, where none of the conduct really happened anywhere in the United States but it's still conduct for which U.S. law provides a penalty and the possibility of prosecution. And that presents a little bit of a dilemma, but there's a statute that addresses it, and it's titled Offenses Not Committed in Any District. And it's 18 U.S. Code 3238, which says that the trial of all offenses begun or committed upon the high seas or elsewhere out of the jurisdiction of any particular state or district shall be in the district in which the offender or any one of two or more joint offenders is arrested or is first brought. So for example, there are sometimes international narcotics traffickers, arms traffickers, people who are engaged in conspiring to commit terrorist acts against the United States. They are all prosecutable and they may not have committed any conduct in the United States. And from time to time, the Southern District would take advantage of that statute that I just quoted. And you would make sure that if the person was being brought to the United States, that person was first brought To the southern district of new york so for example victor boot notorious arms dealer who was arrested in thailand and underwent a lengthy extradition process when he was extradited he was brought to an airport in the southern district of new york that satisfied venue even though he hadn't lived in the southern district of new york or committed his offenses in the southern district the same is true with respect to a famous pirate case that we brought somali pirate you may remember him from the movie captain phillips multiple of the somali pirates were killed by the navy seals But one survived and was brought first to the Southern District of New York to face criminal charges for piracy on the high seas. But sometimes the conduct does happen in the United States, and it only takes, as I said, one act, one connection to the district for venue to lie and be proper. That was true, for example, in a case we brought against an Iranian national named Mansour Arbabsiar, who we alleged had conspired to assassinate the Saudi ambassador to the United States. After law enforcement authorities learned of the plot, they set up an undercover to have interactions with our Babsiar and others. And even though a lot of the activity was happening in Iran uh, and also was happening in Texas with respect to a confidential informant, as we alleged in the complaint when the Southern District got the case, there were two wire transfers that happened to have passed through for a brief period of time, banks located in the Southern District of New York. And even though that seems very minimal, it was sufficient for venue to be proper. Now you may find all of this peculiar and some courts also find it peculiar, and I'll end with a personal story, of a trial that I conducted when I was an assistant U.S. attorney, oh, a lot of years ago, maybe 17 or 18 years ago. And it was a heroin trafficking investigation and prosecution with multiple defendants who went to trial. The problem was that most of the conduct that took place that was identifiable and that we brought evidence of to bear in court happened near LaGuardia Airport or happened in Texas. And as folks may know, but if you're not from New York, maybe you don't know, JFK Airport and LaGuardia Airport and its immediate surroundings are located in the Eastern District of New York, not the Southern District of New York. And Venue was actually challenged in that case. And the basis for Venue that we arrived upon, and again, you may find this peculiar, but it's the law, was that in connection with the narcotics conspiracy, one or more flights took place in furtherance of the heroin conspiracy, and we had to show that that involved the Southern District of New York. Now, how do you show that when both LaGuardia and JFK and Newark the main commercial area airports are not in the Southern District of New York. Well, I can't remember how we happened upon this. I was compelled to call kind of on an emergency basis in the middle of trial, a supervisory air traffic controller who testified uh, very compellingly about how we could have venue in the Southern District of New York, even though the airports were not in the district. And he testified that as a matter of policy and procedure of all flights in the New York City area, whether you take off from LaGuardia, you take off from JFK, or you take off from Newark, and you were flying west. And the flights that we alleged were part of the conspiracy were being taken to Texas. That Every single one of those flights, the pilots would route the plane through something that's an imaginary area in the sky, which was known to air traffic controllers as the West Gate. If you take off from LaGuardia or any of the other airports, you fly through something called the West Gate. That's how they control traffic in the area and prevent collisions and all sorts of other things. And they, they manage the traffic of the airplanes. He testified further that necessarily, by flying through the West Gate on the way to Texas, you fly over land that is located in the Southern District of New York. And that, my friends, was the basis for venue in that case. By the way, if you think it was tenuous, so did the defense lawyer and the defendant. They appealed that matter to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, but they did not prevail. So that, in a nutshell, is the crazy law of venue. We'll be right back with my conversation with Peter Kalmus. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact-check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking... What does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com Slash Preet, cut your wireless bill to fifteen bucks a month at MintMobile.com/slash Preet. Forty-five dollar upfront payment required, equivalent to fifteen dollars a month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above forty gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. Energy has been in the news recently. In the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, many countries, including the U.S., made domestic energy production an urgent priority. But what does that mean for our climate? Peter Kalmus, a climate scientist at NASA, studies the impact of CO2 on our planet, and understands the danger we're in if we don't make changes now. Peter Kalmus, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Preet. So, for the record, Peter, you are a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, and as you reminded me before we started taping, you are speaking in your personal capacity.
1: Am I right? That is correct. Yeah,
0: that is factually correct. <laughs> Pardon my ignorance, but could you explain, in your personal or professional capacity, why there's a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab?
1: Oh, um, you know, uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab doesn't just—you know—it's—it's it's not really making. It doesn't have anything to do with airplanes. Um,
0: <laughs> it's. Well, I don't uh, know. When I was a kid, I was very interested in astronomy. And I cared a lot about uh, NASA's doings. And so yeah. in my in my older age and in my ignorance, I didn't realize we had climate scientists at NASA.
1: You know, so the, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory does a lot of amazing science in the areas of planetary astrophysics and earth science. So that supports a lot of the flight missions that they do. So it's one of the, if not the premier center in the world for um, putting up satellites that Orbit the Earth and monitor the Earth for um, things like temperature changes, moisture changes, records of climate, biodiversity, um, sea level rise, uh, melting ice sheets. I mean, a, a lot of the information that we have about the changing Earth system and all of the impacts of global heating. So this rising temperatures making. You know, a lot of changes occur on the planet from melting ice to uh, animals and plants changing their, um, uh, you know, moving closer to the poles, for example. And a lot of this information uh, we get from uh, satellite observations and and. You know, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, develops those missions, um, implements those missions, puts those missions in orbit, um, you know, uh, makes the data records from
0: those missions and actually does a lot of the science with those uh, data records. So you didn't begin as a climate scientist. Explain your transition to this work.
1: Yeah, Um so I got my PhD in physics from 2004 to 2008 in uh, at Columbia in New York City and um I was originally interested in cosmology the big questions where the universe came from and uh then there was a, a new faculty member at Columbia who was working on uh searching for gravitational waves with the LIGO collaboration and so I got really fascinated by that and ended up working on that for about eight years for my PhD. And then for a postdoc afterwards, I I came to Caltech to keep working on that. And I actually searched for... So gravitational waves are ripples in the fabric of space-time that propagate from really violent astrophysical events like the mergers of black holes at the speed of light through the universe. Um, So they basically can't get stopped by anything. So they can go basically all across... The universe. Um, I was searching for gravitational waves from these really, really strong magnetic uh, neutron stars called magnetars. But over that time period, I kept learning about climate science. I kept reading papers about climate science, and my concern for the state of our planet just grew and grew until I got so basically distracted by climate change that I couldn't keep really my my brain just couldn't keep focusing. On gravitational waves, so it was it was a really hard decision. It was sad. Uh, I felt like I kind of had no choice, but I switched into climate science, and that's when I uh, kind of moved about two miles up the two or three miles up the arroyo from Caltech to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory.
0: Can I ask a dumb question? Does your physics PhD aid you in any way in your climate science? Um, absolutely.
1: Uh, so when I when I first came to uh, JPL, I, I joined a, a group called Climate Physics. So, JPL science is all organized in different groups, um, originally looking at the physics of clouds. And since then, I've moved into uh, studying biodiversity and something called ecological forecasting, where we try to use climate models and relate those climate models to uh, ecosystems and, and even to humans, which is
0: just another kind of ecosystem. So let's talk about climate change. And I want to get into how serious a problem it is. Obviously, many people have been sounding the alarm bell for some time. It's not been heated as much as people like you and others think it should be. But I want to get a sense of the scope of the problem. Now, you have said on a number of occasions, and I presume you'll repeat it here, that based on the data we have and the research that you and others have done, we need to enter into what you call emergency mode as a society. First question is, why do we need to enter into emergency mode and what does that mean?
1: Oh, great question. So, um, you know, the the rate of change that, uh, you know, kind of the society milestones and, and kind of rates of change are usually, for social change, are usually kind of phrased in terms of these deadlines, like net zero by 2050. Um, what is really clear to me and what I'm trying to make clear to everyone is that, We're at 1.2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in the global average. And that's this is already unsafe, right, especially for most affected people, for example, in the global south, closer to the equator. We're entering this huge heat wave right now in the uh, Indian subcontinent, which is going to affect more than a billion people. Right. Um, so we had people die in the in the heat dome event, um, uh, people dying in floods in their apartments. Um, we are already seeing kind of uh, crop yield declines. So in, in my opinion, um, 1.2 degrees Celsius. Where we're at right now isn't safe, and every day. Can, 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 we, pause, can yeah. we
0: pause on that? Just sure. Because I want to get into the degrees, the various degree levels, and what they might mean. Not to minimize the 1.2 degree increase over pre-industrial levels. If we maintained at 1.2 and didn't go any higher, mm. there would not be an existential threat. Fair.
1: If if well, um, it depends on who you are and where you're living. I would say, but if we stayed, well, destruction at one point, of
0: the planet, which is I think what what some people are concerned about. Well,
1: right, we have to define what that means, right? Uh, uh, so, um, you know, we there there are these things called tipping points that loom, uh, mercily in the future, right? So, one that that I'm kind of concerned about is losing the Amazon rainforest potentially um, through a through a kind of feedback loop where. Um, as you have less rainforest, you, you the rainforest itself produces less rain, so you can get into this cycle of increasing drought, right? And eventually the whole thing burns up and turns into savanna. Um, so it's, it's possible that even where we're at now that that tipping point has already started, that process has already started.
0: So you say in, in some period of time, even if we uh, plateau at 1.2 degrees higher than usual, we could lose the Amazon rainforest?
1: Uh, yes, that I think is a fair statement. Uh, other impacts that could continue even at this level of global. So if we stopped uh, fossil fuels basically, um, you know, as quickly as we could now, um, we would stay pretty much at this level of global heating. Um, and a lot of the impacts that we're feeling would would stay at similar levels to what they are now. Uh, one one notable exception for that um, is sea level rise, right? So um, it takes a long time for, we're at a certain level of heat right now and, it, and the ice doesn't melt overnight, right? So it's going to keep melting because of the heat we're already at. And so that will continue to drive Sea level rise, which could cause, you know, coastal areas to be abandoned uh, in coming years and decades. So um, so the heat, if we stop the heat now, that would definitely be a great thing. There are some impacts that would kind of continue
0: to sort of spool out into the future. What is the difference in threat if we go from 1.2 degrees to 1.5 degrees?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I I think so there was an IPCC report that was released in 2018 which looked at the difference between what you know projections for what the planet would be like at 1.5 degrees Celsius versus 1. Point, uh versus 2.0 degrees Celsius of global heating. Um uh, it basically, you know, it Everything all of the impacts from that additional global heat would be intensified, right? So so um there could be new emergent uh impacts and synergies between impacts, right? And and if you have things like crop failures, for example, um starting to occur more frequently, then they're might more likely to occur sort of simultaneously in different regions, for example. But overall, you know, my 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 main statement would be that. Uh, with every fraction of a degree of global heating. Um, So from 1.2 to 1.3 to 1.4 to 1.5. And each of those right now, we're on track for each of those tenths of a degree Celsius to occur after about five years. Um, uh, Each of those increases will make the impacts that we're already experiencing and a lot of people are experiencing. So the uh, wildfires, for example, right, especially in California where I live. Um, the heat waves; those things will just continue to intensify with every
0: uh, fraction of a degree.
1: You
0: know, if it's if it's appropriate, I want to mention how you and I came in direct contact uh, because I want to talk about the reason you reached out. Back in January, I had my friend Ian Bremmer on the show. He's been on a number of times. He's not a climate scientist, but he writes compellingly about risk, all kinds of risk, and. You, I think, as the the kids say, slid into my DMs that evening (laughs) and said, interesting conversation with Ian Bremmer. Maybe I can come on and talk about climate change sometime. I'm sorry it took so long for that to happen. So I I wonder what it is about that conversation that you found interesting. And and I'm guessing there's some points of disagreement. So I want to quote from what Ian said back in January, because he struck a somewhat optimistic note. And he says, the impact of two plus degrees centigrade in warming the extreme climate conditions, I mean, all of those things are going to cost humanity a lot. But then he says, but it's not existential. And frankly, if you were reading books even five years ago, never mind 20, from the top experts in the field saying, here's what five degrees of warming will look like, he says, that is not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And we've broken the back of that. And I think that's extraordinary. And he says, we made a lot of progress in recent times. Is that fair or not fair?
1: Um, oh, I, I disagree with that level of optimism. So, um, I think it's underappreciated how, uh, essentially irreversible the changes occurring in the Earth system currently are. Um, and I just, I feel like we need to come out of this sort of sense of complacency or incrementalism and just, really start fighting for every 10th of a degree because once we get to 1.3 degrees, it's, you know, not going, there's, there's, we can talk about some of the possible techno fixes, but um, I don't think it's going to be easy or fun or nice at all to come back down from 1.3 to 1.2 or to get from 1.2 to 1.1. Um, it's, you know, unless we do something like stratospheric, uh, stratosphere geoengineering, like, like putting aerosols up in the, the top, the higher levels of the atmosphere, um, to, to literally reflect sunlight, which comes with, uh, you know, issues,
0: right? Right. No, I definitely want to talk about that and future, and future technology, but you know, let me make an observation. You tell me if that's fair or not. Mm. There was a time when there were a lot of people who denied, I mean, there's still some obviously denied there was any climate change at all, denied that it was man-made in any way you had the alarm bells being sounded by Al Gore, um, And he wasn't alone, but he didn't have, you know, a lot of people with him in the way he might now. And there used to be a debate on on just the existence of climate change and its impact. And the overwhelming science, we were told, and I believe, said that we we did have climate change and the temperatures were going up. And a lot of that is from carbon emissions caused by human beings. Now there seems to be more of a good faith debate about what you and I have just been talking about. The difference between 1.2 degrees or 2 degrees. Above pre-industrial levels, what that means. A, is that a fair assessment of how the debate has changed? And B, how clear is the science about the effects of these things? Or is it your view that we can't take the chance and the science is good enough?
1: Oh, that's absolutely my view. Yeah, I mean, um, precautionary principle, right? Um, we, I think that this, the climate science community, I think it's fair to say that we were um, surprised by the heat dome in the Pacific Northwest, um, was that last summer? It <laughs> so that feels like it have gone through a time warp. Um, but that was, a, I think, that was kind of a wake up call for for the community. You know, we have the models are great. Um, they're not perfect by any means, but they're they're very useful for projecting. You know uh, how hot the global mean temperature will be um, under different emission scenarios. Um, maybe less good at kind of projecting how that global heat, that global mean heat, is going to manifest in different regions, in different locations, in short periods of time, um, in different parts of the Earth system. And um, we already we already know enough, uh, just like how heat waves are going to increase, how wildfires are going to increase, um, you know, effects on the, the water cycle uh, we i think we know enough to to know that we're heading into very dangerous territory and i think we also know enough to know that we don't know everything and that so far um the the sort of projections of impacts seem to have been somewhat underestimated and that they're coming faster than we expected. Um, so, so yeah, I think that we're not, we're, we're, I think we're already out of safe territory at 1.2 degrees Celsius of global heating. And every, every day we wait, um, to, to kind of go into that emergency mode. And if we have these, these old thresholds that we felt were safe, like 2050 and two degrees Celsius, um, I don't think that those are probably as safe as most people think, um, right? And as new as new information kind of comes in about how you know serious things are, even now, um, we should probably revise our kind of sense of leisurely uh,
0: taking care of this situation, right? I want to mention something you said back in 2019, because I think you you do have to take care not to make it sound like it's all hopeless. Mm. So that people know that there's something they can do. And I want to get to that yeah. continuum yeah, in a moment. I, I but don't. I don't think it's hopeless. And you said back in 2019, quote, today, despite all the grim climate news, I actually feel more optimistic than ever. End quote. So that's about three years ago. Do you still feel that optimism? And what was, <laughs> what was the basis for that? I don't,
1: you know, I don't remember what I was speaking to at that time. I have, uh, I kind of have waves of, I think like all of us, you know, have waves of feeling more optimistic and feeling more pessimistic. Um, well, it's, I it's do, just, just yeah.
0: to give you some more context, it's a piece you wrote for the LA Times mm. that has an interesting title, which goes to the point that I was trying to make and ask you about how to live with the climate crisis without becoming a nihilist.
1: Yeah, well, um, so okay, I think that the rise of the climate movement um, is is that's the main source of optimism for me. Um, right now, you know, uh, sort of feeling this kind of, frankly, rise of civil dis- nonviolent civil disobedience around the world is a cause uh, for optimism for me. I, I feel like there is e- e- the even the film Don't Look Up um, was a cause for optimism for me. I, I feel like. Uh, the mainstream uh, is starting to get the message that this isn't just another issue that this isn't just you know like you know garbage in the local park that you can just go clean up this is something much much bigger um and that it needs to become a much higher priority for humanity so this you know pre what gives me hope and this this will sound a little strange maybe but um I don't think humanity's really tried to deal with this yet like in a in a very serious, uh kind of concerted, prioritized way. Um it's always been something it gets something that, that gets kicked down the road typically. And if we do start dealing with it in a in a very urgent way, I think we could go a lot faster. We'll surprise ourselves with how fast we can go.
0: Well humanity is a is a broad category and there's yes, it humanity is, is divided <laughs> up as last time I checked into different countries, some of whom are at war with each other and some of whom are you know further behind in economic development and have more reliance on fossil fuels. How do we deal with the problem of fossil fuels when there's still some dependency on it and for-
1: More than some, pre more than some. No, there's
0: a lot, no, there's a lot. But, <laughs> but the point I'm getting at, and we're seeing it you know, obviously very seriously in, in recent weeks, given the war in Ukraine, given there's a lot of dependence on, on fossil fuels and their geopolitical and national security reasons to be energy independent, how does that intersect with the goal of getting rid of our dependence on fossil fuels altogether? Do you, do you follow? Yeah, I do.
1: And uh, this brings us back to the question of uh, whether Joe Biden's been the best president of all time on uh, taking climate action. So um, I was, I, I wrote another op-ed about this topic expressing my opinion that um, the, you know, when in the, in the first few weeks of the, you know, abhorrent invasion of Ukraine by Putin. Um, there was a global kind of awakening, an awareness of our dependence, our addiction, if you will, on fossil fuels, and how that was, you know, directly fueling—no uh, pun intended—the the invasion of Ukraine. Right. Um, this was a major source; still is a major source of um, of uh, of of treasure for uh, for Russia that dry, that literally kind of keeps the war machine going. Um, that was a moment which could have been, um, juxtaposed, uh, Onto the climate emergency, right? So there's most, there's so many reasons why fossil fuels are literally killing us right now, right? There's global heating, which is what I'm most concerned about. There's the invasion of Ukraine. There's also pollution, right? Um, uh, air pollution from burning fossil fuels is uh, like in the I can't remember if it's the top or if it's in the top three killers worldwide, right? It has a huge impact, millions and millions of people every year dying from just air pollution from fossil fuels. So you have all of these reasons to get off of fossil fuels. And suddenly you have this moment where people in the United States and people all around the world are kind of aware of how fossil fuels are, you know, because of the war in Ukraine, how, how sort of problematic they are, right? That would have been a great moment for the Biden administration to use the bully pulpit, and educate to sell to the American people a very rapid transition away from fossil fuels into renewable into renewables. And I think that moment was squandered. C-
0: can we do something that I never see yeah. anybody do because we all assume that everyone has some fundamental knowledge and I'm not sure I precisely know how it works. Could you give us a one minute primer on the science of why it is that the burning of fossil fuel in the various forms or the use of fossil fuel in the various forms Warms up the climate.
1: Absolutely. So, all right. So high school chemistry, you burn CH4. That was my at- worst class, by yeah. the way, in all, in, all, <laughs> in all
0: of high school. And I was a pretty good student.
1: My son's taking high school chemistry right now. So, um, yeah. So you burn I, once, that- I, once, I
0: told my kids once, because um, they're asking me if I ever did badly. And I said, yeah, once on a, on a quiz, on a, on a chemistry quiz in high school in 10th grade, I think I got a six. And they said, was that out of 10? It it was out of 100. Um, Luckily, it was graded on a curve. Okay, continue, please. Well,
1: we'll we'll keep this simple. So, all right, hydrocarbons, which are fossil fuels, um, are carbons with a lot of hydrogens on them, but no oxygens. So you got like CH4, that's natural gas, that's methane. Uh, We could call it fossil gas, maybe. That's the simplest one. You burn that, you combine it with oxygen, and you get... Uh, carbon dioxide, CO2, right? The, the carbon from that methane, and then combined with the oxygen. That goes up into the atmosphere and it's additional. Uh, so there's always been CO2 in the atmosphere, right? Um And it's important because it keeps the planet warm enough for there to be life on it. Otherwise, it'd be basically a snowball. But you add this, you take this stuff from the ground, which is this really old carbon, right? From from plants photosynthesizing, um, you burn that stuff. You add more CO two into the atmosphere. Now, what does that do? Well, it turns out that quantum mechanically, CO two has this vibration mode. If you if you think of like the carbon as as your like chest and the oxygens, the two oxygens as your fists. If you kind of like hold your fist down to your side and you vibrate your arms up and down, that's a vibrational mode of the carbon dioxide molecule, which happens to resonate at the same frequency as uh, infrared photons coming from the planet's surface, right? So what that means is you've got this, You okay, take one step back, you've got sun coming into the planet, right, from uh, sunlight coming in, that's a lot of energy, that's, that, that's energy going into the planet, you have the planet which is a certain temperature right so it's basically hot and it emits infrared radiation just like you know when you have a if you if you've ever seen an electric stovetop um, when iron gets hot it turns red for example right so so even before it turns red it's going to be emitting invisible infrared, which is you know at a, a, a frequent at a, a wavelength just a little bit above that red light. so anyway, everything that's hot, Emits infrared and that infrared going out into space is what balances the incoming sunlight. You have to have the same amount of energy going out from the planet as coming into the planet for the planet to stay at the same temperature. Right. So if you have more coming in than going out, it's got to heat up. When it heats up, it's going to start emitting more infrared radiation. Uh, that's just the kind of the, the Planck black body law. Um, and then it'll, re, it'll reach a new equilibrium, but at a hotter temperature. Now, what that CO2 molecule from burning fossil fuel does is you've got this infrared photon coming up from the surface, which might have gotten out to space, uh, taking energy away from the surface, uh, from the planet, and co- cooling it. It hits that CO2 molecule, and, it gets and that's it gets trapped, yeah. then that CO2 molecule will eventually re-emit it in a random, random direction.
0: Some of that goes back down. So it, in that way, it basically acts like a blanket. A couple other terms I want to clarify. Mm-hmm. When people say we need to get to carbon neutral or to net zero, what does that mean and why is that the goal?
1: Well, yeah. Um- <laughs> <laughs> That's such a big rabbit hole. It's a really, really <laughs> great, great question. So, a I mean, physics what, degree
0: is not going to help you there, as you said. N- n- you know, a little bit.
1: A lot of this stuff goes. A lot of this stuff that is important to talk about goes so far beyond science and yeah. physics and climate science. It's all about sociology, really, and it's and it's, it's like, all about and
0: personal psychology,
1: personal psychology, political science, politics, political science, policy. Um, right,
0: so don't avoid the question. Yeah.
1: No, I won't. So, okay. So the the concept of net zero is pretty simple. So hypothetically, so we we emit about 45 billion tons of CO2 per year, like that's humanity's total. So some something between 40 and 50. If we manage somehow to take 2 billion tons per year out of the atmosphere through some mechanism, we should talk about what that might be um then that's a net uh, emissions of 43 gigatons if we somehow magically could take out all 45 gigatons then that would be net zero we'd be emitting 45 by burning fossil fuels and we would be pulling 45 billion tons, which I don't think we could do, by the way. I should make that very clear. But that would get us to net zero. So um so
0: how on earth do you do that, sir?
1: Well, so this is such that's why it's such a rabbit hole. Um, so first of all, I, I want to say that the fossil fuel industry loves the concept of net zero and loves the concept of direct air capture, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. There was a um, a direct air capture facility that turned on about a year ago in Iceland. And um, it, you know, I, I couldn't really find how much it costs to do this, but it, took out um, I don't know how many millions of tons of CO2 per year, which sounded really good. But when I did the math, it turned out that it was three seconds worth of our annual emissions from this one plant. So that plant runs a whole year. At a, but so just who knows to, how much?
0: Just to understand what you're talking about, you're, you're talking about technology, not something naturally done or, or natural consumer activity. That's right. Or reduction in the use of fossil fuels. You're talking about some proactive technology that actually – takes carbon out of the air that you
1: run with energy. Yeah. So if you, if we, <laughs> that you right. run with fossil so, fuels, you could run it with fossil fuels. Um, you could run it with renewables, but right now we're in a, in a kind of race to, to build out renewables, to, to reduce fossil fuels. Right. So we don't have, we don't really
0: have extra energy right now to, to run these plants. Right, so is, is that a reasonable goal or is the goal instead to just reduce carbon emissions?
1: That is my opinion. The goal instead should be to reduce carbon emissions. So we can't. We, we certainly know how to take CO two out of the atmosphere. The problem is, it's essentially pre. It's like running the economy in reverse at some level, right? So for the last two hundred years or so, we've literally powered our economy with. Fossil fuels. Like it's it's up until quite recently. It's been uh, you know now with like fracking. So it, originally you basically just stuck a pipe into the ground and you got oil, right? It was incredibly cheap. You could burn it. You could run all your machines. Eventually you had airplanes, etc., right? You run the internet with with the electricity that you make from it. So um, it's this thermodynamic econo- economic process, right? It's like a an e- literally an economic engine that runs on the thermodynamic energy from burning fossil fuels. So to take, and and, and a byproduct of that was CO2 in the atmosphere. So to run that in reverse, you would have to put in, um, you know, uh, all, probably almost the same amount of energy. I'm not quite sure what the energetics are, but no matter how good the technology gets, there's always going to be an energy input needed, and it's going to be vast. And of course, that's expensive, right? So to run, to get that energy, you're sort of running the economic system. So in the you're, not, you're then, not bullish on that. I'm not bullish on that. And the last, the last thing I think it's really important to uh, to point out is that to speculate that we might, that we, and that should be in quotations, right, the word we, that we might be able to scale up such technologies in the in the future. First of all, that takes pressure off of the main event, which has to be a rapid, drastic reduction in the fossil fuel industry and our use of fossil fuels. Second, the, who is that we? It's basically young people, right? So you're basically saying, oh yeah, at some point 20 years from now, they'll figure, they will, we will figure out the technology to do this, and then and we'll just do that, so we don't have to worry too much. Right, but right also, now.
0: who's going to? There's no. What's the profit motive? Exactly for the private industry to develop such a thing. At least with renewables, capitalism is at play, right? Yeah, there is you're no selling profit. energy, and you can yeah. make a profit on solar panels or on wind. The, the the thing you're talking about to take carbon out of the atmosphere requires government expenditure, right? Yes.
1: Yeah. So it would be that I think if it ever were to happen, the the rationale for it, and I'm not sure exactly how this would work in sort of a market driven context, but the rationale would be like these, these heat waves at 1.5. So we're going to probably at the the rate we're going now, we're going to hit 1.5 degrees and and like the early 2030s. So like these heat waves and these crop uh, losses are so expensive that it's worth it for us to, you know, it's, it's cheaper for us to create, you know, millions of these plants for pulling CO2 out of the air. Right. I think that would be how, how but at the same time, you know, um, Just think of what if we stay on this this fossil fuel track that we're on right now and all of the impacts that we all know about, you know, I've already kind of listed some of them, Um, though those lists of impacts are are all over. Right. We've all heard them. But um, our our children, young people today are going to be uh, their hair is going to be on fire just dealing with those climate disasters, which are going to be incredibly expensive for them. and there's going to be who knows what kind of geopolitical destabilization is going to be caused by that. So they're going to be putting out all these fires all over the planet. Do we really think that they're going to be able to spend some huge fraction of GDP uh, building machines and solar panels to pull CO2 out of atmosphere? Or are they just going to be trying not to get you know killed in whatever war they're fighting in?
0: Does hair on fire release carbon into the atmosphere? <laughs> Never you mind. know I don't mean uh, to, I don't mean to make life, but yeah, um can we can, can, can I have some math can we do a little basic math because I don't sure. I think some metrics would be helpful at least for me to understand. You mentioned a figure a couple of minutes ago forty five billion tons a year going into the atmosphere. Is that a lower or higher number than five years ago?
1: It's a higher number,
0: so, um, so we have not plateaued we we are we are still going up in that number.
1: Globally speaking, we are not—we have not plateaued. The Working Group Three report, which came out on April fourth, it did have some indications that some countries have potentially plateaued in terms of their emissions. I think it's a very slippery fish, though, because, um, you know, aviation uh, production of goods—like, where do you draw the line around a nation's consumption of right. fossil fuels? Right. right? If, you, if China's one, pro- atmosphere. Yeah. If, if China's producing all of your, you know, plastic. Uh, flip-flops and um, that there's a certain emissions associated with that, like where does that
0: get, uh, right.
1: who, who, who? where do you tally that? Right. So so, let me ask a different math
0: question. Um, and I don't know if this works. Is there a direct line or some ratio between the 45 billion tons and a, a time period whereby you can calculate and predict what the temperature rise is going to be? In other words, yeah. if we put up another 10 billion Does that increase the temperature over time by a half a degree, a tenth of a degree? Is there some relationship between those two things that's direct that you can explain?
1: Yeah, basically. So, you know, that's the framing of carbon budgets. There are big error bars on these numbers, and I can't remember exactly what the error bars are, but it's like basically 400 billion tons plus or minus 400 billion tons. So basically between zero and 800 billion tons that we can emit before we have a particular probability, I think roughly 50-50, of surpassing 1.5 degrees Celsius of global heating rate. So the IPCC reports, they're careful, they're very meticulous. They have the actual numbers that were kind of guesses on my part. Um, you know, uncertainties, for example, like how much methane could be released from permafrost melt- melting, for example, and how much uncertainty there is in the, the current estimate which of, of how hot we are at, which is 1.2 degrees Celsius. So there's lots of uncertainties there, but roughly speaking, it's about 400 billion tons, and that comes out to about nine years, uh, maybe a little bit less at current rates of emissions.
0: So that's not a lot of years.
1: It's not a lot of years. I mean, if we start ramping down really quickly, like the IPCC report and scientists of the world recommend that we should be doing, then yeah, we might have a little more than nine years, but um, it's not a lot right now. It's uh, not looking great for keeping... The planet under 1.5 degrees Celsius of global heating, which is why I'm talking about emergency mode. I think part of the problem with these budget framings and these, like, you know, 2050 type deadlines, uh, they create a false sort of complacency and a false lack of urgency. But like I was trying to say early on in this interview, um, I think from a physics point of view and from a point of view of the humans on this planet and the trees that are dying in drought, the coral reefs that are dying from ocean heat waves. The the real correct perspective is that every additional ton of CO2 that we emit from burning fossil fuels, every gallon of gasoline that goes, that gets burnt and goes up into the atmosphere Um, every day that we wait to shift into emergency mode, every, you know, every time climate change, you it's, it's fascinating, right? Because the timescales, right? Uh, climate change was only uh, got like one mention in Biden's state of the union address. Uh, We have like, that's, that's kind of like it essentially a year lost in terms of the bully pulpit, right? Um so that's why I'm talking about emergency mode. I think the the problem is like politics of course, it needs it needs budgets, it needs carbon budgets, it needs economic budgets, it needs deadlines, it needs plans. What I think we should do instead of saying net zero by twenty fifty, right which is problematic both from the net zero point of view and the 2050 point of view um, what we need instead is a detailed roadmap like what's the what's the easiest 20% to reduce right like like rich people's private jets and there's also we have to we have to realize that there's this huge disparity in terms of what the very rich emit versus what you know the globally average or even the globally poor emit so we need a roadmap like can we get the the easy 20% the very low hanging fruit can we do that by like uh, 2024 or something like that. Right. And then you have the, the next, the, the the easy 50%. When can we do that every year? Like, what are we going to, what are we going to go after? What are we going to reduce? And then there's, you know, there's that, the kind of the easier 80%. And then there's that really hard 20%, which is going to have a lot to do with things like food systems, cement, industrial processes. So as we're doing it's the last mile problem. And, but we need a roadmap. Like we, we need world experts, not climate scientists really, but w- world experts in terms of all of these processes, these industrial processes, policies, economics, and, and not the kind of economics that like Nordhaus won the Nobel Prize for, which is like, I, I don't know if you remember that, but it was, um, he, he basically won the Nobel Prize for saying that, um, it won't be – it would be much more expensive for us to deal with global warming now than to just let our kids deal with like a three or four degrees Celsius planet or something like that, right, I'm paraphrasing. Um, but but we need like real economists to like take a hard look at these systems that we have yeah. and how we can go that fast, right? And then we need a year-by-year roadmap. And then, yeah, I don't know what we do about China, but um hopefully – it's a, I don't I that's a, that's that's a problem that almost makes my head explode Preet, because it's hard enough to try to push for change, you know, in my city uh, in the United States. Like I have zero influence in China. But if if a U.S. administration had this kind of roadmap and got a lot of other countries on board with this, then at least they could go into negotiations with China and they could go to the global south and they wouldn't be seen as hypocrites, right? So India is is furious with countries like the United States um, who have had all of these economic benefits from burning yeah, fossil fuels. Yeah, who've caused this problem, right? And then they're they're dealing with the freaking heat waves, right? So uh, they're furious and they're not going to be willing to be part of like, for example, a global. Um, fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty if the global north isn't starting to very rapidly go down this uh, road itself.
0: We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Peter Kalmus after this.
3: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact.
2: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
0: Now you mentioned politics, and I think that's obviously extremely important. People emphasize the science, but without political will, nothing changes. And I want to ask you about politics through a particular angle. So, not only do you study climate and speak about it and write about it and advocate various things, you yourself have decided uh, to become a vegetarian. You no longer fly. And, and I guess I have a couple of questions here. One, is that something you do because you have a personal commitment to doing everything you can with respect to your own carbon footprint, as people say? Or is that something that you realistically advocate that that other people do? And the reason I mentioned and the reason I connected to politics is that, There are people who will say that folks who advocate for, you know, the stoppage of all flying, the stopping of eating all meat and sort of other things, they'll say they're kind of radical and it makes it easier for the fossil fuel folks to persist in what they're doing and to decry people like Peter Kalmus as being radicals because most people still want to eat a burger and get on a plane. How do you respond to that?
1: Yeah, I would say that the, neither one of those are the reasons why I made those personal choices. So that it's it, there's two reasons, two main reasons why I made those personal choices. All right. So one is that it feels just kind of gross, I guess, uh, uh, sort of yucky. I, I don't like the feeling of burning fossil fuels and uh, it's the, the 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 kind of connections between, you know, burning a gallon of gasoline for example or getting on a plane. Right. Do you have and a car? Uh, I, ha- I do have a car. Yeah, is it an, is it an electric? It is an electric car. <laughs> okay,
0: just checking. Just checking.
1: Yeah. Um, so it's it's just really like um, to burn to burn gas uh, to do to do anything like this, which is like for me very obvious and and potentially like unnecessary burning of fossil fuel. It just doesn't feel good to me on a personal level. Like I think if I got in a plane right now, I'd probably feel really nauseous. I, I'd probably have Potentially nightmares about it. Um, it's uh, it came uh, in 2012. My last flight, I was on there. The door shut, and I almost, I was pondering like, should I, should I beg to get off? Like, should I stand up and make a, you know, like that's the le- and and that's when when that door shut, and I was like, oh man, this doesn't feel right to me. That's when I'm like, I don't right. want to do this anymore. So you're
0: saying it's a it's a personal choice, very personal choice. But they were, but are you advocating that people? take your, uh, take your lesson. No, I'm
1: not. Okay. (laughs) Surprisingly, I'm not. So, um, you know, okay. The second reason, but why not? I'll get to that. So this, this, the second reason I, I kind of liked, you know, I went through this process from 20, to 2012, 2013, where I was like examining where my emissions came from. And I was like, oh, like I'm gonna make this kind of a game and see where I can reduce. And it was it was fun. It was fun, it was satisfying. It got more connected to the community. I started growing food and doing a lot of fun stuff, got into some fun hobbies that way, met a lot of new people. Um, and and interestingly, it really caused me to become much more aware of of how we're all kind of trapped in these larger systems and you got to take your kid to school or you got to get to work, or maybe you have to go visit your grandmother and we're, we're trapped by, you know, the, the thing that's cheap is to get on the plane, the thing that's convenient. And there's all these systems that kind of channel our actions and kind of influence our decisions and to push back against those systems and make other choices that are, are, that aren't sort of, um, uh, encouraged by those systems, right? To go against those systems is very hard. Um, it takes a lot of planning, a lot of thinking. Uh, people don't understand it. Right. So, um, but I enjoyed it. And and I was like, wow, no one's saying that this stuff can actually be enjoyable. So that led to me writing a book, which came out in 2017. And it was kind of an experiment I did. My hypothesis at the time was maybe if um, if I like tell people that you can reduce your own emissions and it's kind of this fun Satisfying thing. Maybe a lot of people will be inspired by that and it will actually start to create social change, shift norms around fossil fuel, maybe even reduce a little bit of emissions when people and, and it was an experiment and it didn't work. Um, too <laughs> few, too few people were, were able and willing and in a position to kind of push against those systems. So my, my theory of social change as, changed a lot since then um i still i I think it's a great thing for climate uh, advocates to do to reduce their emissions but i think it's a a little bit dangerous because i have seen some people get obsessed with that and then there's two problems with that right they won't do other stuff they won't kind of get politically engaged and raise their voices and try to like You know, push political leaders, et cetera, uh, do potentially civil disobedience so they can get trapped into just thinking reducing their own emissions is enough. And then another problem is they can get a little bit toxic sometimes and sort of bash people who are advocating for systems change. Um, and and then you get this kind of infighting. But are still eating steak. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there are there are some people like that, and I, I think it's great There's to, a lot of people like that. There's a lot of people like that that are pushing for systems change. They're still flying. They're still eating steak. I don't want them to leave the movement. I want them to keep advocating for change, even if they're not ready to make those- well,
0: That's good. But, I'm glad yeah. you say that, because because the other thing people will say is to the extent you shift the debate or the responsibility to individuals to reduce their own- you know, carbon emissions, Right, you're taking the heat off of the, the real culprits. And it's a little bit like what you said before, you know, it can play into the hands of the fossil fuel folks that's right. and the folks who don't want to do anything about climate change. So I'm glad you said all that. You know, Th-
1: That's right. There's, there's another thing that's really important to, uh, to, to remember too, right? So don't get distracted by personal reductions. They're a good thing to do. They might make your platform as an activist more powerful. They might make you feel better because you're more internally aligned with what you're kind of, Ex- explicit principles are so it's a good thing to do but don't get distracted by it don't also get distracted by things like carbon offsets uh, direct air capture planting trees um, you know recycling like we what we need is a drastic reduction in the fossil fuel in global fossil fuel industry right that's kind of job number one um, probably job number two pre i don't know how much we want to get into this is kind of rethinking um, economic systems right and and the goal of the system of our economy right now. So I, I kind of think of it as a sort of extractive capitalist system whose main goal is to accrue capital for people who already have capital, right? Um, whereas we could I could imagine an e- economic system which which has a goal of flourishing for all people and flourishing for life on earth.
0: You know, so I haven't done this in a while. And by this, I mean I haven't run a rap sheet in a while. But if I ran a rap sheet on you, Peter, would I find a recent arrest <laughs> you would. I would. Did, would you rob a bank? What'd you do? It has so, something to do with the bank. Am I correct?
1: It did have something to do with the bank. So, um, yeah, um, I, I think probably listeners have kind of realized by now that I'm starting to feel increasingly desperate by where um, society is going and how hot the planet's getting and how world leaders seem to be really hell-bent on increasing, expanding the fossil fuel industry. And when when the scientific consensus especially clearly delineated in the IPCC report is that we need an immediate moratorium on all new fossil fuel infrastructure to start to peak and go down. Now, part of why this expansion is able to happen is because of financing, right? And the bank in the world that contributes the most to invest the most in new fossil fuel infrastructure projects is uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. So, um, two days there was a kind of a, a call from a group called Scientists Rebellion, which has been around for about two years. It's uh, scientists like me who are just feeling increasingly desperate and like we're not being listened to, and they're willing to engage in nonviolent civil disobedience, which sometimes leads to arrests. And they decided it would be a good idea to have a a global Action. Uh, So lots of different scientists around the world, um, you know, doing civil disobedience on April 6th, two days after that IPCC uh, Working Group 3 report was released. And so I've been thinking about civil disobedience for several years, and I thought that sounded like a good idea. So, what I did with three other activists, two of whom were scientists, one of whom was an engineer, uh, we, the four of us, walked up to the doors, the front doors of the uh JP Morgan Chase building in downtown Los Angeles. We took out a couple of the there were like two double doors with these long door handles, right? So we took a couple of kryptonite uh, bike lock chains, locked those handles together so no one could go in and out of those doors. There are many other doors into the building. So at some level it was kind of a symbolic action, but we didn't certainly didn't want to endanger anyone. Or cause anyone to feel endangered. And then we simply chained our wrists to those door handles and waited. And after about three hours, we were arrested. Uh, we were, we were in jail for about five hours. Um, we're kind of in, in the head police headquarters, sitting on a steel bench handcuffed for three hours. And then we moved to the actual jail for about five hours. So we we're in custody for about eight hours and we were charged with trespassing and we were released shortly after midnight. And, um, that was that so yeah I'm a I guess you could say I'm a
0: hardened criminal <laughs> it was it was it was worth it though I, I have to say I guess my question is you know I respect that my question is why'd you choose JP Morgan I understand their connection to the financing of the stuff that you uh, that you decry but why not protest instead and maybe you'll do this in the future and you'll let us know why not protest instead slow-moving government entities? Or the fossil fuel industry folks themselves. What's the thinking there?
1: It's you know, it's just a lot of it's just pragmatics. Um it's if you if you or one of your listeners were to sit down and start to think like, how could I do nonviolent civil disobedience to start to create more urgency around climate change and you really did that and you were committed to it it's not so easy to come up with the right the right location for your action so
0: well you, first of all you don't want to fly to west virginia because that's multiple problems right there
1: yeah for i i would i would not choose to do that you know the the group uh, extinction rebellion in los angeles uh which is you know, it sounds like a scary group, but it's just a, a handful of people who really, really care about the planet and are willing to stand up and fight for the planet. Really trustworthy, amazing people. So, so I know that the word extinction rebellion sounds scary, but they're really just people like you and me who are really, really concerned about what's happening on the planet. Um, they, they tried, and I was at, at this action, like uh, before COVID, they tried doing an action to block the entrances of, um, a natural gas storage facility in Southern California called Aliso Canyon, which had a, a huge blowout kind of accident um, a few years earlier that led to uh, sort of a cancer cluster in the area, et cetera, et cetera. So they, they, like thinking, just like you're saying, like targeting, Fossil fuel infrastructure itself for nonviolent civil disobedience seemed like the right thing. It was kind of in an out of the way location. There are many entrances and exits to the facility. They blocked one of them. They locked down, you know, and locked their hands into these kind of barrels um, so that it would, would be sort of hard for the police to. Move them. And nothing happened. So the police just waited them out. Eventually, they got hot in the sun. They had they had to go to the bathroom. They had to eat. Um, they realized there wasn't really any media there. So eventually they just left. So it's it's not so easy to pick the right place to do to kind of make a splash for civil disobedience before we did the J.P. Morgan chase action, we really had no idea what would happen. We didn't know if, it, if we it would get any media at all. If um you know, if we didn't know if we would be arrested or not, we didn't know what the police would, would do. We didn't know if we would get like, you know, assaulted by security guards uh, for the building. We didn't know what would happen, right. but we're just like, this is a fairly simple action. It felt actually, honestly, fairly low risk. Like my, my biggest concern uh, was,
0: um, losing my job or, you know, I was going to ask about that now. So you're a government employee.
1: Well, I'm actually not a government employee. I am an employee of, of Caltech actually. Okay, Um, but yeah, but I do, you know, I am affiliated with NASA, which is, um, you know, I have to be very,
0: very careful. That's a government entity, right? Do I have that right? It is.
1: And, and, you know, I had to be very, careful and conscientious to do things like take a vacation day on the day of the action. Right. And uh, we're having this uh, interview early in the morning. So it's outside of kind of normal working hours. Right. So I have to be careful about things like that.
0: If you were to protest
1: at the White House, would that be a problem for you? um that's a great question i, I don't think you don't so. want to test that so, you know um there was a there was a scientist rebellion action at the White House that occurred simultaneously with our action in uh los angeles and um There, there was another scientist who is affiliated with the government lab who was at that action in Washington and she, um, she has not been fired from her job either. So, um, I think that there's, there's, there has to be a sense that although we're scientists, although we're affiliated, some of us with um, government laboratories, we're still also private citizens in the United States and we're still fathers, we're still humans. We have a right to do things and to raise our voices in various ways, including nonviolent civil disobedience on our own time as private citizens, right? I think that's that's an important distinction that should be respected, I think. And I think NASA does respect that.
0: Peter Kalmas, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for your work on this issue and for your advocacy and for shining a light on something that's so important. Yeah, thanks for having me. Pre- My conversation with Peter Kalmus continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Peter Kalmus. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-Preet. Or you can send an email to letters Cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the cafe team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Doss. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.